call to worship is in your bulletin, and you'll see it's a responsive reading of Psalm 96, verses 1 through 4. So let's stand, if you're able, and call one another to worship as we read it responsibly. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. And now let's take your hymns of grace, the larger hymnal, and turn to number five, and let's sing How Great Thou Art.
remain standing for prayer. Our Father in heaven, how we rejoice to proclaim together with the hymn writer, how great thou art, not merely for the beauty of your creation and your power displayed in it, but even more because you did not spare your own son, our Lord Jesus, but delivered him up to death on a cross to take away the sins of his people. So today, in this service of worship, we pray that your name will be hallowed and Christ will be exalted. And may the Holy Spirit guide us into all truth as your word is read and sung and preached. Use your servant, we pray, to proclaim your word with clarity and power and accuracy so that any here who are outside of Christ may come to know him in faith and repentance and that those who are in Christ may gain a greater trust and a closer walk of obedience to him. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, please be seated. Take your Trinity hymnal, the smaller one, turn to number 133, O four thousand tongues to sing. Our consecutive reading today is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. Luke, chapter 4. And it's a fairly long chapter, so I'll only mention one point. And that's to call to our attention once again 
how the Lord Jesus overcame the temptation of the devil, quoting scripture. I realize it's likely we've all heard that many times. It's how you fight sin. But how important it is for us to be putting sin to death with the word of God. And as the Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter, I think it right to stir you up by way of reminder. So, with that reminder, Luke chapter 4, hear now the word of the living and true God. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and they drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. 
in the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Then he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. And when day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Brother Ken Brown, will you come lead us in prayer? Let us pray together. Lord, Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for this blessed Lord's Day. We praise you this morning, Father, for your goodness to us. We thank you that you walk with us day by day and, and guide and direct our steps. We thank you, Lord, for our salvation. We're in remembrance of the great price that it cost our Lord Jesus for our sins. So, Father, we ask that you would forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness as your word has promised. Father, we pray for those on beds of affliction. We pray for those who are traveling and can't be with us this morning. Pray that you will be with them and provide protection for them. Father, we pray for our church this morning and ask that you would bless our church. We pray for our leaders and ask that you would bless them with guidance and direction, wisdom. We pray, Father, this morning for the ministries of our church. We pray, Father, for the preaching of your word, that it might go forth in power. We pray, Father, that it would be a convicting uh, message and that it would edify uh, those in attendance. We pray, Father, for the 
ministry of our Sunday schools. We pray, Father, for those who uh, teach in those uh, opportunities of uh, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, and give thanks for the Brookdale ministry, and, and we thank you for that opportunity to preach the gospel to those uh, souls who are nearing the end of days, and, and we pray that it would be effective in bringing the lost to Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would bless our women's ministry, our uh, Bible study that they have on a regular basis. We ask, Lord, that you would guide and direct and teach, help them to grow in the, in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you will bless our prayer meeting on Wednesday evenings and, and that you may even increase the numbers who, uh, who come to do this, this uh, holy work of the Lord. And we pray, Father, that it would be an effective ministry. We pray, Father, for uh, your blessings upon the singing of hymns this morning. We pray, Father, that uh, you would bless the playing of the piano. We pray, Father, that you would bless our fellowship, bless the families in this church. And we thank you, Lord, for the fellowship that we have with one another, that we are truly a family that, are, that is adopted by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be a cheerful, cheerful giver, that you would bless the author, offerings, the tithes, that they would, and that we would be good stewards over these things that you have blessed us with. Father, we pray this morning for the persecuted church in all the corners of the earth where devout Christians are going about the business of evangelizing. We pray, Father, for their protection. We pray for their strength. We pray, Father, that you would encourage them, that you would provide for their needs. And we pray, Father, that many would come to faith in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this morning that there might be an end to war in this world. We pray especially for those in the Ukraine who are suffering under the bombardment that is coming from Russia. And we pray, Father, that you would strengthen and encourage and save many in that, that war-torn nation. Father, we pray for our own nation this morning as we come upon this new year. We would ask, Lord, that you would continue working in the hearts and minds of those who are in leadership positions over us. We pray, Father, for the President Biden. We pray for Vice President Harris we pray, Father, for members of Congress, for those in the Supreme Court. We pray for our governor. We pray for our mayor. We pray, Father, that there would be a sweeping change of heart, a sweeping repentance 
among our leaders. That they would see the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and that they would, they would come to the point of redemption of their souls and that they would change, Father, that they would repent and, and lead us in a different direction, your direction. Father, we pray for ourselves this morning that throughout this new year that you might bless us with more faith, with a stronger faith and steadfastness. We pray, Father, that you would help us to endure in these dark times, that you would help us to be shining lights. And we pray, Father, that um, that we would Continue to pray for unsaved loved ones. Pray that you would help us to uh, do this, this mighty work of prayer. That we would be a church of prayer. That this might be a house of prayer. And Father, we, we love you. We place all of our dependence, all of our trust in you. And we would ask that you would send us opportunities to spread this good news of the gospel. Be with Pastor Abraham this morning. Fill him with your spirit. May his message this morning captivate our hearts and minds that we might see the application and practice your truth. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. So now before Pastor Abraham comes to open the word, let's take our hymns of grace again and turn to 368. Number 368, Speak, O Lord.
Room, come please. It's a joy to be with you. We very much appreciate having the opportunity to see you face to face. We very much value the fellowship we have in the gospel with you. I bring you greetings from your sister church where Poonam and I belong to. They're at Grace Baptist Church in Canton, uh, just about an hour from here. And we also very much uh, appreciate uh, the times you sacrifice your pastor to come and preach for us. We thoroughly have enjoyed him. He's been uh, filling our pulpit for well over 30 years, and we really, really enjoy his faithfulness, and we pray for you often in our cycle of prayers. This morning... I'd like us to look at uh, the book of Daniel. And so if you have a Bible there, turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. just read the first verse, kind of his background. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Let's now go to the Lord and pray. Father, we are grateful for how you are to us, your people. You are faithful in every generation. And Lord, as we look back and look at the life of Daniel and his friends and how you were faithful to him. You loved him. You took care of him. You guided him in every situation. And Lord, we desire that we would love you like he loved you, that we would follow you as he followed you. And Lord, that you would guide us and give us wisdom in every situation in our lives here in our generation. We ask, Lord, for your help as we look at your word. We pray you would open it up to us and help me to accurately, Lord, preach your word. We ask, Lord, for your blessings upon us as we're here together seeking, Lord, your blessings from us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The book of Daniel opens up around 605 B.C. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had just besieged Jerusalem. Took away in about two or three waves the choices of inhabitants of the city and left the poor and set up a king Uh, to uh, reign there um, on his behalf. About 10,000 people roughly, and Daniel and we know his three friends and others were part 
of those exiles that he took back to Babylon. You may remember Israel, the northern kingdom, the the ten tribes, um, they, about a hundred years before that, about 722 B.C., the Assyrians had already come and conquered them and actually removed a good portion of them uh, back to Samaria, back away out of Samaria. And uh, here the Babylonians, actually now the Medes, and then uh, are going to be taking them over in not too long a period. A lot of turmoil in the known world at this time. So that's one thing that we see is the background. Daniel is going through uh, almost cataclysmic uh, kinds of political upheaval. Um, Not only is he taken away from his home as a relatively young man, but uh, there is not a lot of political stability. So there are kingdoms rising and kingdoms falling. Uh, There are battles happening, sieges. Uh, One of the unfortunate um, uh, characteristics of that time is there was lots of disease, starvation, and uh, war. So there were a lot of gruesome ways to die. Few died peacefully. Also interesting here, and I found this interesting, anytime you're reading Ezekiel or Habakkuk, uh, Jeremiah or Zephaniah, they were all contemporaries of Daniel. It's kind of interesting. There's not that many books in the Bible where we see um, other writers' perspectives by the Holy Spirit at the same time. Um, And Jeremiah not only prophesies King Nebuchadnezzar coming, but actually he writes a letter to all those exiles and uh, sends it to King Nebuchadnezzar for them uh, to uh, pray for the prosperity of the city that they are exiled in. And Christ confirms the authorship, if there's any doubt in your mind, of who's the author of the book of Daniel uh, in Matthew 24. Um, Christ refers to So when you see the abomination of the desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, the Lord confirms Daniel as the author. And Jeremiah was given several prophecies of how King Nebuchadnezzar would come with his armies. He'd besiege it for several years. He'd take away the king, all the royal palace, all the key uh, individuals, and really the all they left behind were the poor um, in, in the city there. Uh, now, let's turn to uh, Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. In thinking about the book of Daniel, and specifically about this passage here, which is very familiar to all of us from when we're in Sunday school. We hear about Daniel and the lion's den. And uh, it it is definitely an amazing and exciting uh, display of God's power, and he gets the glory. We'll we'll read together at the end, uh, at the mouth of this unbelieving king that Daniel is serving. But What I've been thinking and meditating about, Daniel, is how appropriate it is for us here, living in this time and place in America, 
for believers uh, living in America, I don't think there's been a time where uh, godlessness or anti-God or anti-Christ has ever been so accelerating. There is persecution now for believers, if you are a believer, and it is continuing to increase. Unlike other places in the world or other times in the world, that has been the norm. You read uh, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John. You read Galatians. You see that. You see whether from religious uh, elites or from... uh, the world, uh, God's people have often been in persecution. And here, this is what we see in Daniel. And it should not be foreign to us. So the question is, how do we live? How should we live in persecution? How do we stand? How do we remain faithful? How do we make those difficult decisions? How do we live an uncompromising life? And I think that's one of the key characteristics that Daniel teaches us, that we can directly apply to our relationship with God and our understanding of the world around us, the world around us. We'll we'll just walk through this passage and try to extract from it what the Lord clearly showed Daniel and how he got his glory from his life, which is what we all desire to do, wherever place and time the Lord puts us, that we would be an honor and a glory to God as we serve him. This passage, uh, if you just look back, the prior two verses, Daniel chapter 5 at the very end, That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. This is the king right after Nebuchadnezzar. And Darius, or Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. At this point, Daniel has served as a prince, an advisor, a magistrate uh, to the Babylonian kings of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and following him, uh, Belshazzar. The way Daniel and the way the Holy Spirit led him, he he doesn't write to us a historical uh, guidebook of his life. He probably showed up there as maybe a late teenager, maybe his early 20s, had to spend three years in training in the Babylonian training, uh, royal training program there in the palace under Nebuchadnezzar. But right now, it's probably about, it's rough to estimate, maybe 60 years later, maybe 70 years later. So he's in his mid-80s, maybe 90. He's not a young man. So any Sunday school pictures that you have in your mind of a young man and two or three little lions, you know, in the den, You just erase those. He's an old man. He has actually served multiple kings and served well, not only just interpreting dreams, but he has served as a government official, a government official. And we see that he's been given many honors. 
at this point, but there's regime change. The Medes have conquered the Babylonians. This is regime change. The, they have taken them over by force, and they are now in charge. So it's unknown what's going to happen to Daniel. Let's start in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom. Now this is the entire combined kingdom of the Medes and the Babylonian kingdom that they just conquered. Set over the kingdom 120 satraps. It's not a common word for us. You can look at it as provincial governor. You know, or state governor, 120 states. They divide the kingdom geographically to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit, excellent or exemplary or extraordinary spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So Daniel was preserved by God, given favor in the eyes of this new regime, Darius and he has made him as part of the new government and actually set him over the 120. So now he's sort of in that second tier of government under the king, these three leaders, and he's considering to actually elevate him to be above everyone, second only to him. Daniel's given by God wisdom, many abilities, a servant's heart. We see that time and time again. Loyalty to the one he serves. And really a great attitude. You notice this term, excellent spirit. It is clear to everyone, all the unbelievers around him, that he is committed to worshiping God, serving God, and obeying his commandments in an uncompromising way. Now, you can imagine in this world where there is a new regime that came in. They don't know Daniel. They have other gods and a new religion. The, the religion from the Babylonians may have been kept to survive, but it's not the true religion worship of God. And yet... He does not compromise anything to try to make sure that he or his colleagues are safe in this new regime. I mean, they're exiles from a prior regime. You know, they're the slaves that were conquered by the previous people that were just conquered. 
it's not really a place where you can negotiate from strength. It's also of note to notice for us this sin of envy. When a person's gifts become evident in the world or at work, in school, any organization really, in the church. Often pride and envy of others around them rises. We can sense that even in our own hearts when we see a brother or sister is being used by God and their gifts that God has given them becomes evident to all. It's also interest as you read through Daniel how similar his experience is to our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Daniel in many ways is a type of Christ. And you'll remember that the primary reason that the Pharisees wanted to crucify Christ from Pilate's perspective was envy. For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him. So they go about seeking to entrap Daniel. And they realize we have to figure out a way with respect to the laws and commandments of his God. Starting in verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. It's kind of interesting. Daniel actually says this and seems like to be the standard introductory praise for when you first address the king. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction. And you'll note here there's obviously a, a lie and seeking to deceive even at the opening of their statement because it's unlikely Daniel was aware or even <laughs> uh, supportive of this petition that they're proposing. That whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days up to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. So the Medes and the Persians, they're a combined entity now they they have joined together the persians have actually joined together with the medes and now they are one kingdom and they have now one set of rules and guidelines and they're in babylon at the at the headquarters they have their king and darius and the way of execution they maintain a way of execution. They maintain a lion's den. They maintain a den of hungry lions. So if you don't feed them humans, you know, in a pit, you'll feed them an animal every once in a while, but you keep them alive and you keep them hungry for 
the time when they're going to be needed to execute someone. A gruesome way and obviously a deterrent and uh, incentive for people to obey the king's law. But they appeal to the king's pride. They put him up above all the other gods, false gods of that time, and any other man. They make it clear that he is, should be the supreme point of interest for 30 days, for 30 days. Notice Daniel's response. Really, we don't hear much from Daniel in this chapter. That's to be noted. Verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, this edict, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So we don't hear from Daniel a complaint. We actually don't hear from him a protest. We don't hear from him saying, actually, I wasn't consulted and, you know, this doesn't match my expectations for religious freedom. He doesn't make a fuss. He, and he also doesn't compromise. He doesn't say, well, you know, you've got to think about this reasonably. 30 days is not that long. God will understand if I don't pray or I don't worship him for 30 days. In the big picture, 30 days can't be that big an issue to God. And, of course, he doesn't want me to go into a den of lions and be eaten, so maybe I should consider just adjusting, compromising what I do. And I find this particularly instructive for us as we find ourselves in a world where we are worshiping God, read his word, we pray, we gather together as a church regularly. But the world around us is changing and not for the better, becoming more aggressive one step at a time, whether through ridicule, whether through subversiveness, whether at school or at work or amongst our unsaved friends or family. The temptation to compromise, to be accepted, to be liked, to be thought well of, to be promoted, to maintain the positions we have, the opportunities we have, or to avoid some kind of punishment, which I believe is increasingly so. It's true for our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. And unfortunately, it appears it's going to be that way for us here. So the question for us is, how does Daniel come up with this rationale to just say, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, even though the law has changed and the environment around me has changed. And it's temporary. He knows it's for 30 days. He knows what's in it. How does he decide to continue on, to do exactly what he had done before 
as if this law did not exist. It makes zero impact on his decision of how he's going to live his life and how he's going to love and serve his God. He doesn't waver to protect himself in any way. Doesn't close the windows, doesn't try to hide. Doesn't reduce the number of times he prays. Maybe I'll just cut it back to once a day, once a week. Then these men came by agreement, verse 11, and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. They find him exactly as they expected to. They knew he was going to be faithful. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah. Notice they don't say to him, you know, he's one of the top three leaders of our country reporting directly to you. They actually refer to him as, you remember that guy that you inherited from the prior regime who is really nothing but an exile? Pays no attention to you, which is not true. Loyal, faithful, honors those that are above him. Gave great respect to all those he served. O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Fear of God <clears throat> is what drives our faithfulness. You see this phrase a lot in our Bible, the fear of God, the fear of God. There's that test of faith for Abraham that is every time I read it, unimaginable in my own mind. Genesis chapter 22, he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham so trusted God and his promises that he would make a great nation from him, and that he provided this apple of his eye, this lad, Isaac, that he was willing to obey God and kill him and sacrifice him on an altar of fire. And the assessment, assessment from God before he murders his son is you've passed the test. I see that you fear God. Satan 
brings this up with the Lord with respect to Job. In Job 1, verse 9, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? One of my favorite passages there in Ecclesiastes 12, whenever you need clarity of what we are living for and how should we live, Ecclesiastes 12.13, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. In 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter encouraging those in the church who are under persecution, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I find it very interesting, very similar to what Daniel's situation is, a godless and oppressive and anti-Christ government. And yet Peter is telling them, fear God. Honor the emperor. Whether Abraham or Job or Solomon in his moment of clarity or Peter encouraging the church is fearing God gives us clarity to focus on our worship of God and the way we live, and the decisions we make, to the point where those things that would cause us to compromise become irrelevant. And so I argue Daniel's love for God and fear of God caused him to rest totally in his God. So when this edict came out, it didn't even take a moment for him. He didn't have to wrestle over what he was going to do. He didn't have to pray about it, angst about it. He knew exactly. He would just dismiss it. He knew that the Lord, who he feared, who he worshipped, who he loved, had brought this into his life, and that no change of course in him was required. It's the fear of man the fear for our own comfort, losing our comfort, losing what we have, losing maybe our friends or the appreciation or love of someone else, that causes us to compromise. And the scripture regularly tells us What can man do to me? In Psalm 118, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. Or in Hebrews 13, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Daniel had this perspective. What's the worst someone could do? Call me a name? Ostracize me? Throw me in a den of lions and I would die? What is all that? That is just what they could do to me and my body. But I trust the eternal God. And I know that he is alive, sovereign, all-powerful. He is the one I serve. 
His loyalty to him is above all others. There is really nothing of significance anyone else can do to me. And so when I'm asked to compromise in my relationship with God, I dismiss it. Let's keep reading Daniel chapter 6, verse 14. And the king, you see, he sees his foolishness now. He's been deceived. He's let his pride and the flattery get the better of him. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. He was trying to figure out a way out of this bind that he had put himself in and condemned Daniel inadvertently in alignment with the sinister plot of those who wanted and were envious and wanted Daniel's downfall. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians, Persians, you know, they're now lecturing the king, that no injunction of ordinance or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. There's not a lot of detail here. And we don't even hear from Daniel. The king says, hey, I've got to try to figure this out. Takes the whole day till the sun goes down, and then... These guys come and lecture him and say, well, it's the end of the day. Justice has got to be meted out. What are you going to do? And he commands him. And then Daniel doesn't say anything to the king, nothing recorded here, to his, to his accusers. And remember, Daniel doesn't know the end of the chapter at this moment. So you've got to try to somehow create that, put yourself in his shoes. He's a... Uh, 80, 90-year-old man, served well, exiled from Judah. All he has memories back home, and he's thinking, I guess this is the way it ends. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. I find this extraordinary. And we'll see more extraordinary statements from this King Darius. He knows a lot about Daniel. He sees that he's consistent. In fact, his consistency in serving God is what got him into the lion's den. But he is telling Daniel that he hopes his God, who he is so faithful to, delivers him. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet. You can imagine that in the ancient world. They get wax, they heat it up, they pour it on, probably the joint where the stone overlays the border. And then he pushes his ring in, and then they, the signet of his lords, they push their ring in, and there it is. When it dries, you can see, is the seal broken or not? And what is across that seal that wax blob that solidified there is all these ring insignias 
so that no one would challenge the opening of this cave, probably a pit, and to save Daniel, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. You can imagine the king and those around him would say, this is extraordinary. The king is, has a guilty conscience, but he doesn't want anything to divert his thoughts. He can't sleep. He doesn't want food, music, dancing, whatever the king would normally get to take his mind off his troubles so that he could get to sleep that evening. And it is of note that Daniel, we don't hear him saying anything or yelling from the lion's den or screaming or asking for mercy. Very similar to our Lord in his moment where he was condemned. You might remember that in Matthew 27. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Daniel follows the pattern of his Lord Jesus Christ in the moment where he is condemned accused, and judged. In this moment, God decides for Daniel that it will be salvation from the lions, not his entry into heaven at this moment. Verse 19, Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste, to the den of lions. I find this curious why he would bother going. It seems that, based on what he said, he thought maybe there's a possibility this God that Daniel continually serves, that he would save him somehow. As he came near to the den, where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, yes, a question, whom you serve continually, what he mentioned before, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, he's still in the pit, and the stone is still rolled over there, we see at this moment. But from inside this cavern with lions, we hear a voice, O king, live forever. Kind of interesting. It's exactly what those scoundrels said to the king when they opened in their introduction to him and setting the trap. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me. Because I was found blameless before him. He talks to the king 
about God's judgment of him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. I find it very interesting that Daniel waits till the moment where God makes it clear to Daniel of what he's going to do. Daniel didn't presume on God. He rested that whatever God would decide would be best for him. But now that it's evident, the lions aren't going to eat him. Their paws aren't going to break his body. Their claws aren't going to tear his flesh. And their jaws are not going to consume him. He can now confidently say, this is what the Lord's decided. He's found no guilt in me for the decision I made to violate this 30-day law and continue doing what I had been doing. And I have done no harm to you, O king. There's no disloyalty in me. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him. Not a mark. Now, this is amazing. I mean, we don't even understand how he got down into the pit without breaking a leg or getting scraped up, let alone being harmed by any of the lions that the angel of the Lord had tamed. Because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded... And those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. So the miracle is evident. The lions weren't full. There weren't too few of them. Daniel didn't hide in a corner. He wasn't able to find an old bone and beat them off. He wasn't able to climb to a high enough spot that they couldn't reach him. They weren't asleep. They were alive, hungry, and a lot of them more than Daniel's body could satisfy. Because when this large group of people get thrown in, they don't even touch the bottom before they're attacked. Daniel trusted his God completely in the face of any circumstance. He put his relationship to God, his service to God, above all other things. He had an eternal view. He had a view that transcended all visible reality. You can imagine Daniel's perspective. He had seen kingdoms rise and fall, or from his perspective, fall and rise. He was probably comfortable living in Judah, and then taken away from his family, 
taken away hundreds of miles to a foreign place and seen the destruction of his beautiful city and asked to serve a foreign godless king, a couple of kings. What can we learn? I think one of the first things we learn is how to sojourn well, how to see ourselves as pilgrims. Daniel gives us an example of how to serve where we are, where God puts us. For the believer, for every one of us here, living here in Michigan, in the Midwest, in the United States, in the now 2023, this is our privilege, this is where God has put us in time and space. I would argue from Jeremiah, we should pray for our country, like we heard our brother Cliff pray for the leaders of our country. I think that is good and right. We should be loyal. But we should never forget that we really don't belong here. We're pilgrims. We're sojourners. Our ultimate loyalty and primary Allegiance is to our God. Every moment, every day we wake up. Daniel sought after God and understood life in the light of eternity. He teaches us how to sojourn well, how to pilgrim well. He teaches us how to fulfill this prayer of the Lord Jesus, that we would be in the world, but not of the world. We would be wise while we're here, but never compromise. That wisdom will never lead us to compromise. Godly wisdom will never lead us to compromise our faithfulness, our fear of God. He could have been bitter with his circumstances, Lord, why didn't you keep Judah going? Why didn't you let me stay back there? Why didn't you put me in a place where people really wouldn't notice me and I could have just been like the other exiles, just living my life quietly? Why did I have to be brought here, be elevated, and then be put in these tests, these situations time and time and time again? where I would be tempted to compromise. He's blameless, and when he is condemned, it's for doing good. And this is where it's very much in alignment with the words of 1 Peter 2. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, notice what Peter's saying, this is when we have God first in our hearts and minds, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. His faith is true. We see that, tested by persecution. His life brings honor and praise to God, even from unbelievers. It's amazing. And he trusts God completely. 
For unbelievers, for those that are here that don't really understand why Daniel would be so uncompromising to this practice three times a day, facing Jerusalem, praying, windows open. Is it that big a deal, really? 30 days? You can't give that up? You have to make an issue out of it? You can't just obey the king? You say you honor the king. Just obey this edict, and then everyone can just get on with their lives. For those who are thinking that way, it's because you don't understand the salvation that you need. Don't understand what it means to be able to be reconciled to a God who loves you and for you to love that God. I have no doubt that in those exiles, there were those, they were all from Jerusalem, the city that was besieged. They were all fairly educated because that's what the instructions were given to make sure to leave the poor behind, those that would be uneducated, those that, but only those that would be of use to the new regime, bring them back to Babylon. I have no doubt that there are many there who did not follow after God, that he was not their, their God, and that they did not fear him like Daniel and his friends did. This is supernatural faith. Faith doesn't get generated by us. We that have faith, we who have been saved, if you look upon us, we appear to you as aliens that have been taken over from, by some external force. And that is true in some respects. That is true. That is why we behave the way we behave. In fact, it should be of great compliment to any believer when someone tells you, you're not from around here. You don't behave like other people behave. You, your, your priorities, how you react to things, your allegiance, your ultimate allegiance, is different from everyone else I know. This is what the grace of God does in our lives when he gives us faith, repentance, the fear of God, adoption, and a view of eternity like Daniel had. I pray for anyone that's here. You might be a good person, regularly attend here, you know the brethren here. Your mom and dad might bring you here regularly. People speak well of you. But to have this true faith, to be able to stand in the time of temptation and not compromise, not even for a moment, 
Not a blink like Daniel. When testing comes, whether it's insidious, people imply that you may be less intelligent or you may not be accepted, or it would be less insidious and more overt, like real punishment will come to you if you continue to believe what you believe and do what you do and prioritize what you prioritize. My prayer for you, brother and sister, is that you see the beauty of the Lord, the value that Daniel put upon all other things, including his own life. He had no guarantee that the lions weren't going to kill him. His only hope is that God would do the right thing. And that was enough for him. That was enough for him. And pray that all our faith would grow, especially in this coming year, where we see increasingly our own sin, the world, the governments, they're not for us. We are pilgrims, we are foreigners, and we have no part here for the long term that we would live before them and that they, with their own mouths, would be able to say, like King Darius, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. Now notice how he closes. King Darius. God, he delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. This is a testimony from what we can see. An unbelieving person, yet it's clear He knows Daniel's God is one who saves. He's one who rescues. He is the living God. He is the God that we serve. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for this amazing work by which you receive all glory and honor, Lord, in the life of Daniel. You intervened and you had even unbelieving kings write edicts in praise and honor to you, to your power, to your eternity, and to your saving, loving grace of your servants. Lord, we pray that we would grow in our faith, each one of us, as This world is increasingly hostile to you, to your worship, and to your people. We pray, Lord, that we would remain uncompromisingly faithful, that our fear of you would grow, that our sense of you would grow, and that each moment we would be able to instinctively live in the Spirit and that we would seek to honor our Lord Jesus Christ in all that we say and do, whether we are with unbelievers or we are with your people. 
We pray, Lord, that we would be a testimony. And even those around us who do not know you would look at our lives and know that we continually serve you faithfully. And, Lord, you are our greatest priority and our only hope in this life and in the life to come. For those that are here, Lord, that do not know you, they do not have you as their Savior, as their God, we pray, Lord, that they would see their need of salvation. They need to be saved from their sin and from the temptations that are around them and the sin that enslaves them. We pray, Lord, that you would be merciful, that you would open hearts, and that, Lord, you would give repentance and faith, and that you, Lord, would be merciful and save many today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for that message. Let's take our Trinity hymnals, turn to 267, appropriate hymn of praise and thanksgiving to our Savior for his word preserved and given to us to this day.
are dismissed.